Thank you all for joining us this morning, this Sunday morning. We are well into something that we're calling the Jesus Series. How weird is this that a church is going to spend all this time talking about Jesus? Isn't that strange? No, it's not strange at all. It's what we should be doing as a church, isn't it? And so we're doing this thing. We start in September. This is going to be running all the way through the beginning of May, looking at the life of Jesus in a somewhat chronological order so that we can grow in our relationship with him so we are better equipped to share the truth of Jesus with other people. We have reached a wonderful, pivotal moment in the Jesus series because this past week, for those of you doing the readings, this past week you read the Sermon on the Mountain. And for about 11 years, maybe a little bit, it's only three little chapters, you can do three chapters, the Sermon on the Mountain. And the reason that I encourage people to read the Sermon on the Mountain is because the solution to so many of our problems is contained within the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe not all of our problems, but the solution to so many of our relationship issues, our relational problems, our relationship conflicts, you know, the way that we respond to hardships, the way that we respond to persecution, the way that we deal with worry and anxiety, so many of these issues are addressed and explained in that Sermon on the mountain. So here is what we're going to do today. For the first time ever, and you're here for it, folks, I am going to talk through the entire Sermon on the Mountain, all three chapters. Are you ready? All right. I thought some of you Christians would like this. All right, open up your Bibles. Here we go. Matthew chapter 5, open up your Bible, your Bible app. Note takers, do your thing. Chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and began to teach them. And so here's the scene. Jesus has assembled his core group of 12 disciples, but there were many more people following the teachings of Jesus, the larger group of disciples, and they were there to hear from Jesus. And so he begins to teach them. Now, whenever Jesus taught at this point in his ministry, there were other people listening in. You had members of the Sanhedrin. You probably had some Pharisees. You most certainly had some of those members of the religious establishment there listening. Not there to receive, but there to critique and assess. But let's keep in mind, even though those people are there, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, blessed, or blessed if you prefer, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we have to stop right there. What's, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Blessed are the poor in spirit. It doesn't sound like a positive thing to be poor in spirit. And some people interpret that and think, well, maybe poor in spirit just means sad or struggling, you know, to be poor in spirit, to be depressed. And maybe it means that. But if we think about who Jesus is speaking to, not to the righteous, not to the people who think they've got it all figured out, who see themselves as spiritually rich, no, he's talking to the people who know that they're sinners, so it seems like this is Jesus speaking to the people who know that they're lacking something spiritually and they're coming to Jesus to have that need met. And so blessed are they. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And looking out of that group of people assembled there, he knew that they were struggling. So many people with, with heartbreak and heartache in their lives. And he said, blessed are you. You're struggling now, but you will receive comfort. Blessed are the gentle. Maybe your Bible says meek. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Meek's a fine word, a fine translation. I think the better translation of the original Greek is gentle. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Gentleness, one of the fruits of the Spirit we'll read about later on. Gentleness. Sometimes we Christian people lose our gentleness and how we interact with others. Gentleness. 
Sometimes gentleness is perceived as weakness. It's not weakness. It's gentleness. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Righteousness, what a fun church word. And it simply means those who are pursuing, doing the right thing, walking along the right path. Blessed are you if that's what you're seeking after. If that's what you're hungry for, you're going to be fed. If that's what you're seeking after, you will find the right way. I just wake up in the morning, God, I want to do the right thing and pursue your righteousness. Well, guess what? If that's what you're hungry for, you will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And so many of these things that Jesus is saying and what we call the Beatitudes, he's going to expand on later. And mercy is withholding retribution, is withholding a punishment that somebody else deserves. And Jesus says to his disciples, blessed are you when you show mercy to others, for you're going to receive mercy back. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Throughout the Old Testament, and then more specifically in the New, we see this idea of having our hearts cleanse back in the Old Testament. We see David going through this period of terrible sin, and then he goes before God, and he confesses his sin, and he just wants a new heart, a clean heart, a pure heart. And we come before Jesus nowadays, and we confess our sins, and we ask him to cleanse our filthy human hearts, cleanse us of our sins, and blessed are those who have that clean, pure heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And please don't mistake this for just like the pacifiers, right? Some people in this world, they don't want to get into it. They don't want to bring up difficult issues. And I don't, I'm, I'm quite sure that's not what Jesus is addressing here. But the actual legitimate pursuers of real peace, have you ever found yourself in a position where you're the peacemaker, right? Teachers in the room? Yeah, the peacemaker. You two aren't getting along. Let's talk about it. As a counselor, sometimes I meet with couples, and it's my job sometimes to be peacemaker. People are talking past each other. You're saying the same thing, but you're using different words. You're on the same team. Let's find our common ground. Real, not, not the illusion of peace, but real peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We're making a little transition as we move into verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Blessed are those who endure some kind of trouble because they were doing the right thing, right? That's what righteousness means, doing the right thing. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, talking again to his disciples, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now let's keep this in mind, Christian people. Are there any Christians out there? Sometimes we kind of manipulate this verse a little bit. We think, well, I'm just going to go and I'm going to tell the bold truth about Jesus. And if you don't like it, tough. And if you hate me for it, great. That's wonderful. I'm happy to receive that persecution. Well, are you being persecuted for the sake of righteousness? Or are you being persecuted because you're acting like a jerk, right? If you're being persecuted and insulted because you're acting like a jerk, there's no benefit in that. There's no reward in that. But if you're actively pursuing the things of God, and if you're being persecuted and insulted and cursed in the name of Jesus, there is Reward in that, Jesus tells us to rejoice under those circumstances of persecution. Not complain, not say, why me, God? But to rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, Jesus is speaking to the Israelite community. He says, look at your own history. Within your own history, God would send prophets People to tell, you know, uh, men and women, in some cases, to tell the people, the larger community, here's God's will. Here's what God wants you to do. Here's what God wants you to know. Here's what God wants you to change. And how were those prophets treated? They were persecuted. 
And so he says to his followers, if you get that opportunity to receive persecution, just know that you're not alone. That you stand in history of one of those who's persecuted for righteousness' sake. And if you get that opportunity, rejoice and be glad. And we get to the book of Acts and we see the followers of Jesus receiving that persecution. They're imprisoned and they're beat up. And they respond by rejoicing. Hey, we got to suffer for Jesus. Rejoice and be glad. Luke chapter 6, Jesus tells us to leap for joy when you receive persecution. Woo, do we do that? Oh man, it grieves my heart, especially here in America when Christians complain about persecution. I'm like, we have no idea what persecution really is. Other parts around the world, you accept Jesus as Savior, you go and, and you're baptized, receiving Jesus as your Savior, and you've just put a bullseye on your forehead. People are killed for receiving Jesus as Savior. And here we are complaining, I can't say Merry Christmas anymore. Yeah, you can. Just say it, right? What are we complaining about? And if you get that rare opportunity to be persecuted for the sake of Jesus, rejoice. You stand with the heroes of the past. You stand in a long line of people persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Verse 13, you, talking to his followers, talking to his people, you are the salt of the earth. What is the salt of of the earth. What does salt do? Especially in those days. Salt, and it still, it still does. Salt preserves and salt was used to cleanse. And if you ask me, salt also makes things better, right? My cardiologist might disagree, but salt <laughs> makes things taste better. But let's focus on those first two. It preserves and it cleanses. And Jesus is saying to his followers, that's going to be your work. That's your function in this world. Now, Jesus has done the hard work he secured salvation for us, but it's the job of the followers of Jesus to make that message known to other people. You're going to be the agents of cleansing and preserving in this world. Right? We're the salt of the earth, but if that salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again and is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men? This is harsh, but this is real. If you're not fulfilling your function as a follower of Jesus, then what good are you doing, Right? So those of you who are followers of Jesus, take this to heart. We have a function. We are to be salt in this world. If that whole salt idea was a little confusing, I think it gets clear with verse 14. You are the light of the world. We see throughout the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, this idea of light versus darkness. And it's more than just good versus evil. Light illuminates. Light clarifies. Light makes things clear. At one point, Jesus describes himself as the light in the world, but then we who follow him, we are his light bearers. You are the light in the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. How many of us Christians? Kind of turn down the volume on our Christianity when we're around other people. Well, I don't want to be, uh, kind of shy away from being that light. He says, no, 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 no. Don't dim that light. Be the light of the world. Let people see your good deeds. Not for the sake of praising you, as Jesus will clarify. No, but for the sake of praising and glorifying your Father who is in heaven. Verse 17, I referenced this last week. Do not think, I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill, I'm not here to erase the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. I'm here to fulfill it, is what Jesus says. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Again, Jesus is here to accomplish all of the law and the prophets. And then he says in verse 19, whoever then annuls one of these least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And some people get a little bit confused by that verse. Wait a minute, Jesus, didn't you just say that you're here to fulfill all those commandments? And yes, he is. But then he gives us his new commandments. And I believe that's a reference to his new commandments. Whoever is kind of like, again, ignoring some of the commandments of Jesus, saying, well, it's not that important to do. Well, they're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever is following the teachings of Jesus, the commandments of Jesus, and teaching others to do the same will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24, I say to you, then unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and yeah, I see you over there, scribes and Pharisees, and I'm talking about you, but unless your righteousness surpasses their righteousness, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I see all those people, those Pharisees, they did possess a certain brand of righteousness, the external righteousness. They were following the commandments, they were following the laws, they were observing the holidays that God commanded, but what about their hearts? Their hearts were far from God. That just rule following, that legalism, that is not righteousness, no. That kind of behavior, that, that, that is not going to save anyone. Verse 21, and now Jesus begins addressing these heart issues. Verse 21, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, And whoever murders shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court or the Sanhedrin. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Here's what Jesus is saying. Hey, You've heard it said not to kill anybody, and you made it to the end of the day without killing anybody. Good for you. (laughs) Some days that's a struggle, isn't it? Good for you. You made it to the end of the day without killing anybody. Hooray! What about your heart? Were you angry with your fellow human beings? Because God values what's going on in your heart. And As we learn in the New Testament, as we continue to read, we are commanded to not let the sun go down on our anger. Are you angry? in your heart. Therefore, oh, listen to this. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Right? The value, the priorities of God and to know, okay, you've been commanded to bring an offering before God, but what's more important than presenting your offering to God, what's more important is the ministry of reconciliation. Does somebody have something against you? You're about to present that gift. Oh my goodness, I've got some conflict in my life. Well, go work that out to the degree that you are able. Last school year, we spent a lot of time talking about this very issue, this ministry of reconciliation. And we're all limited. There's only so much you can do, but you can make sure within your own heart and in your own life, you have no regrets with your relationships. I did what I could do, I said what I needed to say, and I made every effort to make things right, and you have no control over how that other person receives your confession or your forgiveness or your attempts to make things right, but your goal is no, no regrets. Jesus continues with this theme here. Make friends, can we just 
<laughs> Let's just pause here, right? Make friends. How about that <laughs> for a teaching of Jesus? Go into this world and make friends. Gets more specific. I just don't want to miss that part, right? Because you look at how children make friends, and it's just like they don't care about somebody's background or what they look like or what. Just let's make. Let's be friends, right? We're in proximity with each other. Let's be friends. More specifically, Jesus says, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Now this apparently was an issue. Is it, is it to the same degree now? I don't know. But people were getting sued, right? People of the Israelite community suing one another, making enemies within their own community taking one another to court. He owes me 500 bucks. No, I don't. They go back and forth and back and forth. And Jesus says, just make friends with that person. Just make friends with that person. He says, he, you know, you owe him money. Well, just give him the money. Make friends, all right? What is it worth it to you? Make friends. You can go to that court, and even if you're right, you show up at that court date, even if you're right, and even if you're just, you don't know how the jury's going to find or how the court's going to rule. So make friends. Make friends. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, let's go back to the heart issue, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's the heart that matters. Where's your mind going? What are you fantasizing about? What's going on within your heart? If your right eye makes you stumble from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. About 16, 17 years ago, I was having a conversation with a pastor. and I was sharing with him how I interpret the Bible and I read the Bible literally. And he referenced this very passage. He says, well, surely you don't take the Bible literally. I mean, Jesus says to gouge out your eye if it's going to stop you from sitting. Jesus says to cut off your hand if it's going to stop you from sitting. I mean, do you take that literally? Yeah. <laughs> In context, because Jesus tells us the literal meaning. It is literally better to lose one of the parts of your body than to go to hell, right? That's literally the truth. It is better to walk through life maimed than to spend eternity in damnation. Do you not agree? Of course. And so that's the literal meaning, what Jesus is saying here. It was said, verse 31, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And so during the days of Moses, we had an issue and people's hearts were cold. And so God made accommodations. and said, okay, you're allowed to get divorced. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, some preachers and teachers are afraid to talk about the topic of divorce because we look at our congregations and we know, oh, I know that we have people that have gone through divorce in my congregation, and I don't want to make them feel bad. So let me tell you a little secret. People who have gone through a divorce, they already know how tough it is. They already know that it's not God's ideal. And so for the sake of you who are single or dating or thinking about marriage, listen to these words of Jesus and know what a big commitment that it is. God has an ideal for marriage. Again, verse 33, you have heard 
that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, where it is the throne of God, or by the earth, where it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, where it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you, you have no control over your head. <laughs> you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statements be yes, which means yes, or no, meaning no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Just be honest. Say what you mean and mean what you say, and then you never have to swear. No, seriously, I mean it this time. Do you remember that when you were kids? No, I swear. Me and my uncle, we went and we killed a bunch of wolverines last summer. I swear. We were hunting for wolverines. We caught about... I swear. You remember that as kids? All the lies you used to tell? I really am going to do it this time. I promise. Just always be honest. <laughs> Let your yes mean yes. Let your no mean no. Woo! Problem solved. Just be honest. All right, where was I? Help me out here. 38, thank you very much. You have heard that it was said eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Again, you've heard these rules about retaliation and retribution, and they make sense, don't they? Someone takes something from you, you take that very same something back. Balance. Doesn't that seem fair? It does seem fair. But no. <laughs> you have heard that that's fair. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, you Christian people, if you've been reading this, if you've heard this before, it sounds familiar to you. You have to realize how new and radical this teaching was. Wait a minute, what? We are not to retaliate when we are wrong? That's what Jesus is saying. Don't retaliate when you're wrong. Don't repay evil with evil. Right? If anyone wants to sue you, again, why, are these, why is everybody taking everybody to court here? If someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let them have your coat as well. It's not worth it to me. You want to sue me over my shirt? I'm going to give you my shirt. I'll give you my coat as well. You can take my tunic. What do you want? What's it going to take to make things right? It's not worth it. Retaliation is not worth it. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. You've heard the saying, go the extra mile. Jesus doesn't get credit for that one, but it's his idea. Go the extra mile. In that day and age, the Romans, they were legally allowed to force a Jew to carry their equipment for one mile. A Roman soldier could say, take all my gear, we're going to walk for a mile. And you had to do it. You had to do it. Or you'd be thrown in jail, or worse. And so Jesus is saying, when your enemy approaches you and say, I want you to carry my gear and walk with me a mile, say, I'll do it. I'll, go, I'll do one better. I'll go two miles with you. Instead of complaining, Instead of a retaliating, go the extra mile. This is not intuitive. This is not how human beings live without being instructed. I mean, we're, we don't think this way, do we? No, go, go the extra mile. Verse 42, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Just give freely. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Love everybody, neighbors and enemies, friends and enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. Don't pray against them. Pray for them. Love them so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. 
What are you going to do? Just love your own kind? Love your own people? Christians? Modern-day Christians? What kind of love is that? Right? Well, I love my fellow Christians, but these heathens out there, who am I going to love them? Come on. Or even within certain Christian circles, I'm just going to love the people who have my same theology and my same doctrine, but I'm not going to love those people over there. Love. Love people who are different from you. By the way, nowhere in this does Jesus say, oh, this is going to be simple to live out. This is not simple, (laughs) right? But it's worth doing. Verse 48, love verse 48. Therefore, are you ready for this? (laughs) Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, so everybody, let's be perfect. Got it? Good. Up to this point, What Jesus is describing in terms of how we take care of people, how we relate to people, how we make things right with people, this is how God takes care and relates with and provides for us. He's saying just interact with people the same way that God would, perfectly. Not sinlessly, but perfectly. Complete, right? Again, does that make it a little bit easier, that teaching, right? Be perfect? No, be complete. Treat other people the way that God would treat people. Chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. This is another heart issue, right? Just as previous chapter, Jesus says, no, let people see your good deeds so that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. But don't do those good deeds to be seen by men to receive praise from them. It's a heart issue. It's a motivation issue. It's a why are you doing what you're doing. God cares about such things. So when you give to the poor, do not sound the trumpet as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward in full. If someone goes out doing good deeds in order to receive praise from other human beings, guess what? That's all they're going to get. You went out there, you did something good. You did your, what do they call that? Virtue signaling or whatever. Okay, you let the world know what a great person you are. We all think you're fantastic. Great. That's your only reward. At this point, I have to ask, does anyone else notice that my shoe is untied? Is that distracting anyone? I just, I just felt that. All right. Talk among yourselves. I'm going to tie my shoe. <clears throat> There's got to be a reason he's doing this. Is there a lesson in this? Maybe there is. Tying it all together. That's exactly. We staged this. Thank you, Jeff. Tying it all together. I was just afraid it's going to distract you. You're not going to listen to anything I say if my shoe's untied. All right. Where were we? <clears throat> Before the shoe incident. But when you give to the poor, 6-3, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your father, so that your giving will be in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. If you crave rewards from heaven, that's what you'll get. If you're doing these good deeds just to be noticed by people, well, that's all you get, okay? When you pray, this is a tough one, you are not to be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Don't we break this every single Sunday? I stand up in front of you and say prayers every single Sunday. Am I breaking the teachings of Jesus? You're afraid to answer, aren't you? (laughs) It's heart. It's motivation. Are you praying big, you know, fancy prayers with your big words just to be noticed and seen by people? Are we taking it out the street? Everyone, quiet down so you can hear my prayers. You know, are we doing that? No. 
We're gathering together as God's people behind closed doors, praying. Our motivation is not to say, I think you pray great. Hey, Josh, I think you pray great. No, we're praying together. It's the heart that matters. Are we picking up on this theme? It's the motivation. It's the heart that matters to God. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard because of their many words. And so he's talking about, first he's talking about their own people, the Israelites, the Pharisees, and how they do this kind of show-offy type of prayer. And now he's talking about the Gentiles who worship the fake gods, and they do this kind of chanting and repetition, thinking that's going to get God's attention. No, don't pray like that. They think they'll be heard because of their many words. So verse 8, do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen? Amen. And then there's verse 14. And so church people gather together sometimes on Sunday morning, sometimes. You know, there are certain churches that say this prayer every single week. But what does it say in verse 14? For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Don't retaliate. Don't fight back. Don't try and get even. No, instead, forgive. Just like you want God to forgive you. Forgive others. For if you forgive... Oh, yeah, I said that. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Moving on. Verse 16, is that where we are? Whenever you fast, you know what fasting is, going through a period of time without eating, you're trying to dial in and really build up your, your relationship with God, or sometimes people fast, fast because they're asking God for something, or they're seeking God's counsel, or seeking God's direction in their life. He says, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward in full it's the same theme. Your heart matters. Your motivation matters. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You know, Christian people, if you engage in this practice of fasting, do it the right way. Do it for the right reasons. I've had conversations, in fact, not too long ago, sometime last year I had a conversation with somebody, a Christian person. The first thing he said to me is, oh, by the way, I'm fasting. Can I even ask? right? Thanks for letting me know. I think you're great for doing it. Is that what you want? Like, what is it? If you're fasting, just keep it to yourself. That's between you and God. Or a couple can fast together, a family can fast together, but just don't risk it. Don't broadcast it. It's between you and God, right? All right, I'm lost again. Where are we? Thank you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where the thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. All right? We all know that our time on this planet is limited. How much of our resources, how much of our time, how much of our money are we investing into something that will not last, that has no eternal value? 
we should be mindful of this. Right? We need to accumulate these treasures in heaven. Well, how do we gain treasures in heaven? Well, just read what we've already read, five and six so far. Jesus told us what we are to do and what we are to pursue in order to receive rewards in heaven. Now, verse 22 gets a little bit tricky here, and I think we lose something in the translation. We don't quite have this comparison in our culture. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? We wonder, Jesus, what are you talking about here? Well, think about the function of your eyes. You use your eyes to seek after things. You use your eyes to pursue. What are you looking at? What are you seeking after? That's part of it. But think of it this way. If you're just looking after, I'm going to accumulate wealth, I'm going to accumulate comforts, I'm going to look at these things. Well, what are you not seeing that's in your periphery? Right? If you're so focused on the things of this world, you're going to miss all these other needs around you. All these other ways that you can invest your time and your money to help people who are in need. What are you looking at? Are you blind to the needs of other people? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. What are you talking about, Jesus? He makes it clear. You cannot serve God and wealth. You've got to choose one or the other. I could say more, but I'll just keep reading. For this, is, for this reason I say to you, verse 25, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat, what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, does that make sense to us? This idea, if you're so worried about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear or how you're going to meet your needs in this planet, right? Isn't your life more important than food? Think about what you're doing with your life as opposed to how am I going to get my next meal? What are you doing with your life? What are you doing with your existence? That's more, that's more important. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them are you not worth much more than they? He's just setting up this idea. God's going to take care of you. You look to him for a provision that he will take care of your needs. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? You know this already. Your worry accomplishes nothing. What do you gain from your worry? Worry doesn't change your circumstances. Worry doesn't change things. Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, who was the richest man who ever lived in Old Testament times, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? How will I pay my Pico bill? What's going to happen? How do I pay off my student loans? What's going to happen? Don't, no, 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 no. Don't worry. Now, up to this point, what Jesus has told us is, you know, it makes sense not to worry, but he's about to give us the solution for what we do instead. Because that's difficult, isn't it? When someone just tells you, stop doing the thing. Well, how do I redirect my energy? What do I do instead? Right? 
For the Gentiles, those who are far from God, eagerly seek all these things, all these comforts, yet your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. Verse 33, here's the answer. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. With your life, instead of worrying about what am I going to eat or what am I going to wear or what am I going to do for work or how am I going to make, worry about your existence, your life. Focus on that and pursue God's righteousness. Pursue doing the right thing with your existence. The first job I ever had in ministry was working with youth. It was the director of youth ministry. And occasionally you'd have a a junior or a senior in high school and they're worried about college. What school am I going to get into? What am I going to do for a job? Well, here's what you do. Try to figure out God's call for your life. (laughs) Pursue his kingdom and his righteousness and let God take care of the rest. I remember one occasion where I had parents come in, (laughs) worried about their child, worried about their son and what he was going to do. I said, well, what about God's call on his life? And they laughed at me. (laughs) We're not talking about God's calling. We're talking about a job and money and what school and if you get it right, training to get it right. No, 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 no. Focus on what does God want for you. Or put it another way, why did God put you on this planet? Why did God give you this life in the first place? Make that the priority. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness. God will take care of the rest. And if you don't believe me, try it. So do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough troubles of its own. Ain't that the truth? What do they say? One day at a time? Jesus came up with that one too. That's another one he doesn't get credit for. One day at a time. Chapter 7. Do not judge. You see those guys over there. I know they're listening in, the Pharisees and the scribes. Don't be like them. They're not actually listening. They're just here to judge and assess and criticize. I mean, these are the people that are actively looking for something that they can use to accuse me, right? That's what we know about them. Don't be like them. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the same way you judge, you will be judged. And by the standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Just don't do it. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me help you with your issue, right? Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus isn't saying you're not allowed to try and help people. He says, first, you have to address your own stuff, your own issues. Anybody watch the show 30 Rock? Anybody watch the show 30 Rock, right? I don't watch shows like that because I'm a Christian, but I'm not judging you. Um, I'm kidding. It's a great show. But the one character, Liz Lemon, she's always trying to give people advice, but her life is falling apart. What are you doing? Take care of your own life. Take care of your own stuff, and then you can help other people with their life and their walk with the Lord. You know, one of the reasons that we have church, one of the reasons that God has called us to be a community together is because we can overlook these logs in our own life, right? And our brothers and sisters can help us see what we're blind to, what we're looking past, right? So again, Jesus isn't saying you're not allowed to help other people. He says, no, you've got to take care of your own stuff, right? Instead of trying to address these issues and nitpick what's going on in somebody else's life, no, address, address what's going on in your own life first. And this is a tough one, verse 6, do not give what is holy Two dogs, do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. And what Jesus is saying here is, if I can just put it briefly and, and succinctly, he's saying, don't be handing out unsolicited advice, <laughs> all right? You got to be careful of this type of thing. 
You know, you've got your pearls of wisdom and you see what's going on in somebody else's life and you know what they're doing is wrong and you know what they need to do right. Well, are they open to receiving anything from you? Because if they're not, you're going to give that advice and they're going to tear it up and they're going to criticize you and they're going to turn and tear you to pieces. Be careful with those pearls of wisdom. How many times have I failed in this department, right? How many times have you failed? You want to help somebody. You can't help somebody that's not willing to receive the help, just like Jesus couldn't communicate truth with the Pharisees and Sadducees because they weren't open to hearing it. On the other hand, Christians, don't use this verse as an excuse not to speak up. Don't do that because we do that too. Again, Jesus isn't saying that any of this is easy. It requires wisdom and discernment. But don't use that as an excuse not to try and help someone. Verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now, Jesus is talking about what we are to pursue in this life. What are we to be seeking after? Verse 8, for everyone who asks receives. He who seeks find. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. And if you're curious, like, Jesus, what are you talking about here? Well, let's just keep reading. What man is there among you? And when his son asks for a loaf of bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake. If you see one of your children legitimately in need, right, won't you take care of them? I'm hungry, Father. I'm hungry, Mother. Well, here's a stone. Chew on that. No. And again, it's, it's a need. It's necessity, right? It's not like you're going to before your father and mother and saying, dear mother and father, I just, please buy me a Sega Genesis, yeah? That's what I did once upon a time. One Christmas a long time ago. Please bestow upon me a new game system. No, no, no. He's talking about needs here. If you have a child that comes before you with a need, you're not going to give him a stone, right? Or a snake. If you then, did I read verse 10? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? You need something. Ask God. Later on, we get to the book of James, and he says, you do not have because you do not ask. The importance, the centrality of prayer. If you need something, ask God. How often? I mean, just the little things in life. How often do we reach for a bottle of Advil when we have a headache instead of saying, God, heal me? You know what I mean? Why not ask? You do not have because you do not ask. In everything, verse 12, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. Oh, how novel. For this is the law and the prophets. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's another one. Does Jesus get credit for that? That's Jesus. Just treat other people the way that you want to be treated. Not how, not how they have treated you, but how you want to be treated. Treat them in that way. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. Jesus is telling us that his way, his approach to life, this is counterintuitive. Don't go along with the crowd. They're pursuing comforts in this world. They're trying to exercise retaliation. They're exercising judgment. They're not being merciful. Don't go that way. Go through this way instead. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. There are few who find it. Let's count ourselves among the few to live our lives the Jesus way. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly, there are ravenous wolves, a false prophet. A prophet is someone who speaks God's message to people, right? 
So whenever you go and you talk to somebody, say, I feel like God wants me to tell you this. Or if you say, well, here's what God thinks about your situation, you're being a form of a prophet. And a false prophet is, is speaking to someone and saying, well, this is from God when it's actually not. All right? Did I ever explain that? It's very simple. A false prophet is lying. A false prophet doesn't tell you what God wants you to hear. A false prophet tells you what you want to hear. Got it? Watch out for them. They look like gentle little sheep. Ooh, you're telling me what I want to hear. But inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. You will know them not by their words, not by how well they speak, not by how well they present. You will know them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. It's just simple. Go beyond their words and look at their life, the fruit of their life. What are they doing? What are they accomplishing? You know, a few weeks ago, we looked at this account with Jesus and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, he saw the signs. He saw the fruit of the ministry of Jesus. It wasn't the teachings of Jesus that changed his mind. It was the fruit. You're doing good things. Good things are being accomplished. So we judge a prophet by their fruit. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And that's the case in this day and age. There are many people using the name of Jesus and, and preaching in the name of Jesus, but are they actually doing the will of Jesus? You will know by their fruit. What are they accomplishing? And Jesus says to them, if we don't have a relationship, if you don't really know me, then depart from me. Therefore, oh, I can't believe we're here. What time is it? Not bad. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them must be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was that fall. When Jesus had finished saying these words, the crowd were, crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. And that is the Sermon on the Mountain. Thank you. Please hold your applause. Thank you. Man, I tell you what, <clears throat> some of you Christian people, not all of you, but some of you Christian people, you just love preaching like that. Some of you. Why don't you preach like that more often, Josh? Give us more in the Bible. Just teach us through the Bible. Listen, I love doing it too. But here's what you need to know. Listen to how Jesus ends it. You know, there's no benefit in just listening to it. <laughs> there's no benefit in just reading it. We have to actually do it. We have to live it out. That's where there's a benefit. In John's gospel, Jesus says, okay, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The benefit is not in the reading, and thank you for doing the reading plan. I appreciate that. But the benefit is actually living it out. So let's put these things into practice. You can sit here on a Sunday morning in this sanctuary that is way hotter than it needs to be. And you can listen to me speak these words to you, but the only benefit is in actually living them out. So let's live them out. We are not content as a church just to talk about these things. We have to live them out. So let's love one another. 
Let's love our enemies. Let's judge prophets by their fruit, not by their words. Let's not retaliate. Let's be merciful. Let's be forgiving. And let's treat other people the way that we want to be treated. And when we do these things, when we practice the teachings of Jesus, it's no guarantee that we won't face hardships. No, but when we put these things into practice, when we face hardships in this life, the storms of this life, the rain of this life, when we put these teachings into practice, we will stand strong in the face of those hardships. We are not content just to listen. We are not content just to read. We must put these teachings into practice. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your teachings. We thank you for your instruction, and now we need to live it, God. Give us the courage, give us the ability to live this out. And Father, we thank you for this worship time. But as we depart from this space, let our worship of you continue. Let us worship you with our lives. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.